You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. Mom? Yeah? Mom, you need to come and get us right now. What? What happened? Mom, get in the car and come right now. Do you know how long that would take my car, Rebecca? Mom, trust me, there's something wrong with Nana and Papa. I'm telling you, you need to come and pick us up tonight. Becca, you're scaring me. My heart is in my throat. We're okay now. Just come. Where are they now? They're out. They're outside of the chicken coops. They won't see you. Becca. They've been acting so strange, Mom. We've been recording them. Becca, t- t- I kept telling Becca something was wrong, didn't I? And Becca, Tyler. And Anna walks around at night with a knife. And Pop and, and, and Pop had a gun in his mouth. Tyler, he was trying to hurt himself. Becca, Tyler, babies, I, I need you to listen to me very carefully. Becca, Tyler, just listen to me. We are. Those aren't your grandparents. Welcome to this review of The Visit, part of the binge movie aftertaste, M Night Shyamalan retrospective. Come on, let's see what's out there. Join Garrett. I'm too big. I can't reach back there. Matt. He's faster, but I'm I'm smarter by at least two standard deviations. And the returning Mike Ganeri. I'm a Yahtzee master. Doesn't everyone in the cafeteria call me the Yahtzee master? As they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. You better hide my ethnically confused friend. From that little-known e-weekly emission, The Sixth Sense all the way through his new release Old coming out July 23rd, the boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. What the hell was that? Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor's profession? Ready or not, here I come. When did everything go wrong? Is there a right answer? And why the hell did Mike not see the sixth sense? until this retrospective. He has a very strong personality. The answers to all these questions and more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. I'm having so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) The Visit, released September 11th, 2015. Yes, that is real. Budget on this is $5 million. Box office, $98.5 million. And this was directed by our buddy, M. Night Shyamalan. Welcome back to the cinematic world of M. Night Shyamalan. My name's Garrett, but you guys can call me by my rap name, G. Diamond Stylus. I am sitting here with my two co-hosts. Wow, that joke really landed with a thud, didn't it? No, no, I'm just thinking about it. I'm just considering it. Okay. Well, it's good to have jokes that make you think. Matt and I, we gave Mike a little break from M. Night. We went through a rough stretch. I don't know if anyone listened last month. We reviewed The Village. We reviewed... Lady in the Water, we reviewed The Happening, we reviewed The Last Airbender, and we reviewed After Earth. That is a bad, bad stretch. So we gave Mike a little bit of a break. We reviewed movies about toys. We reviewed movies about fast cars. But now we're back to talk about what has to be seen as a comeback for M. Night. He was gone. He had trouble getting funding for this. He put his house up, $5 million, to make this. And lo and behold... He had a $98 million box office take and a resurgence to his career. Guys, the visit's coming out. It's a few years after After Earth. Are you guys excited for this? 
I'm trying to put this as delicately as I can, but I can't think of another way to say it, so I'll just leave it at no. I was put off by just the name M. Night Shyamalan. There's only so many times I can get burned in a row, and I thought After Earth was going to be good. Shame on me. I'll take the L on that. But Shyamalan was doing a straight-up horror film. I think this is the first time he fully went into the horror direction, at least in the marketing. We could talk about what this movie actually is from a genre point of view as we get into it, but I was more intrigued by the Jason Blum attachment. Blumhouse runs the gamut of great to borderline unwatchable, and sometimes they kick down the door of unwatchable. Where is Blumhouse at this point? Like, what have they done at this point? They had just won an Oscar for Whiplash. You know, that did really well. I keep I always forget that that's them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do too. He doesn't do just horror movies, although that movie's... But mostly they were known for Paranormal Activity, Insidious, Sinister, The Purge. A lot of the mainstays of horror over the past 15 years have come from Blumhouse. And they did the last Halloween movie. They're going to do the next two, too. So they're still very much in business. Mr. Ganeri, what about you, sir? This is coming out in 2015. I think you and I had met in 2015, maybe the year after. Were you excited for this? No, not really. Uh, I, I At this time, I just really didn't have any kind of connection to Shyamalan. I'd only seen a few of his films. Just one, actually, at that point. He was just very off my radar. I was working, actually, this time, like in the years leading up to this, in the months leading up to the release of this film, I was actually working in, in market research, and we were showing clips of movies and early trailers to people um, of, of upcoming films, and I remember this was one of them, and it was like, The Visit from M. Night Shyamalan, and I was like, really? We're M. Night Shyamalan? But I didn't feel very strongly about it or anything. Um, and uh, hadn't seen it until uh, today, actually. Oh, nice. And, you know, I, I also have to bring this up, and I, and I feel like I have to do this in the beginning of every one of these podcasts, but this guy just jumps from genre to genre, in, at least in the last few films. Mike, where do you stand on found footage? Do you like found footage? Do you, are there any found footage films that you really like? I love Cloverfield. I think that's a fantastic film. Big fan of that one. But beyond that, I've only really seen a few sort of I mean, most of them are not regarded very well, so I've literally only seen a few uh, found footage horror films and haven't liked very many of them. I mean, I, I honestly can't remember most of them. So that's really my, my big thing is is just Cloverfield, the original Cloverfield, and, and that I don't really have a lot of associations with that. I know some people kind of – it seems like there are less of them these days, but certainly when they were really prevalent a few years back, it certainly seemed like there was a big faction of people who were just – absolutely hated the whole found footage thing so it is a very cheap kind of gimmick and well i think we'll, we'll get into what that approach does here or does not do here matt I, you know I, I think in the years we've worked together i don't think we've reviewed a found footage film together yet what about you are you a fan of the found footage genre as a cohesive unit no but there have been a couple that i like but i don't i i'm not one of those people who likes the blair witch project I don't like Campbell Holocaust. The two big ones I'm not a fan of, but I will say I really dig the... Whichever one is the prequel, the first prequel one that they did, uh, because that one does some really inventive stuff with the camera, putting the camera on the ceiling fan and it slowly rotates. I think the key to found footage is you have to find a way to do something different with the concept. Getting actors that feel like actual people, because I've always said what always takes me out of found footage movies is... Even I understand that it's a lot harder, especially nowadays, because of the internet and everything like that, but it's such a tough genre to do well, in my opinion. 
because it's so limited and you really have to find a, find a way to make yourself stand out. There's something that about always having a camera in the actors' faces that it, it just always put me off about found footage, you know? But when they're good, they're really good. Matt, it seems like you opened up the door for n- another retrospective because I've been actually been on the fence about whether or not to do Blair Witch. I happen to think that's one of the best horror films ever made. I also, I'm with Mike in thinking that Cloverfield is fantastic. And I know Pete, who also works for the site, he is a huge fan of Cloverfield. So when they're good, they're really good. But when they're bad, we have Wreck, Troll Hunter, VHS. All of these movies, I, I just don't like. I, I don't like when there are cameras roaming around and people have to run with them. And yeah, and I understand that's a lot of what Cloverfield's about, but I feel like that's kind of like the Godzilla found footage film. You know, I, I, if you put it in realms of a Godzilla movie, I think you'll have a better time with it than people who are like, oh, it's just a weird looking creature. So yeah, I'm mostly on the negative side of found footage, but when they work, they really work for me. So M. Night, he knew that big budget of blockbusters, they weren't his thing. After doing two of them, he was just like, I'm done with this. And I mentioned when we did After Earth that I, I thought it was to M. Night's credit that he didn't lay the blame of what happened to his last movie in the laps of the Smith family. He took a thrashing as well. And here we have a filmmaker essentially starting over. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that, spoiler alert for what my opinion is going to be later on, but I think that's this film's real saving grace. He, out of really out of necessity and desperation, went to this found footage approach, and I think it was absolutely the right approach for him at this time. I think that's why I like this film more than any of the ones we've done in a very long time. I think he nails it here. I mean, nails it is strong because there's, I mean, it's like this is an amazing masterpiece or anything like that. But this film did exactly what it needed to do for his career. And I think that the next couple steps he's taken in the past few years since then have also, for the most part, been pretty dang good for his career. I think he's figured out, he's, I think he had a bit of an ego check with some of those flops. And I think that he recognized that, you know, going independent in a way, like self-financing his own films was a way to really put all of himself into the films and to take a little bit of the damage if it didn't work out. And I think that that kind of has pushed him, at least for the ones that I've seen. Yeah, M. Night's name in 2015 wasn't on the lips of too many people out there, including producers. And surprise, after M. Night came up with this script, no one was willing to take him up on this. They weren't willing to buy it until a guy by the name of Jason Bloom, who we've already spoken about, he came into the picture and he attached his name to it. And that's what gave it a little bit of clout. And boom, he has his first hit in a very long time. So Jason Blum has a history of doing that where he early on took on directors that had basically been burned out by the Hollywood system. Before this, I always think of James Wan. After Saw... James Wan made two bombs in a row. His career was almost done. And then Jason Blum approached him. He did this with Scott Derrickson, too, after his Dave Harrison still remake was a colossal failure. He pretty much said, I'll give you $5, $10 million if you can sell me on an idea. And I think he applied that same logic to Shyamalan, because if the other two guys were in the crapper, Shyamalan was in the sewer with the Ninja Turtles at this point. He had nowhere to go but up. So the fact that Blum, you know, I think he took a chance. But at the same time, I think Shyamalan was being a little playing it safe, quote unquote, because this was like the peak of found footage. Paranormal activity was still going on. There was that, God, it was called Unfriended, where the whole thing was done on a Skype call. That movie had this trailer attached to it. And you know what? Spoiler alert. I actually dug that film. That years ago, and they did a good job of committing to the actual conceit. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think Blumhouse being attached to this gives me some hope. But at the same time, Shyamalan was kind of playing it safe because this was the new hotness. Yeah, I mean, it's like low-budget horror is just like that's such a reliable put-a-coin-in-to-the-jukebox-you-get-a-tune sort of thing. I mean, it's, if you get enough distribution, it's 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 hard to, to go too wrong with that. I mean, it's possible to do so, but that's such a reliable kind of way. of You don't need stars, you don't need a huge yep. budget, and you can still make a shitload of money. I mean, look at some of the most successful horror films. I mean, you have something like Paranormal Activity. I mean, shot for, you know, <laughs> probably as much money as I've got in my wallet right now or something, you know. Look how much money that made. Or, like, even going back to the classics. I mean, Halloween is one of the most lucrative mm-hmm. films of all time just based on return on investment. And so is, um, I mean, uh, plenty of examples. But I think that that is what's helping him out in this film is that he's not going for some sort of grandiose statement. He talked about, I think you mentioned, Garrett, I think when he made The Happening, he talked about that as being like a, a his attempt to make a, quote, B-movie, unquote, but mm-hmm. that really wasn't. And this is. That's what this is. This is a cheap 85-minute or whatever horror movie with no stars. You release it at the right time. You get some teenagers to go to see it, and you can theoretically clean up. And that's basically what happened. Yeah, four syllables, PG-13. Yep. Yeah, I worked down in Hollywood a number of years, and I worked on a number of independent productions. Let me tell you guys, 90% of what I worked on were horror films, little indie horror films. And you're right, Mike, the return investment on those is almost guaranteed because there's an appetite for them. You don't need it to stars. You need a little bit of blood and get yourself an iPhone and boom, you can make yourself a movie. It is a very safe thing to sell to distributors and such, which is why I think M. Night went this direction. And Matt, you said that the 2015 was kind of the height of uh, found footage. I think we were on a bit of a downturn of it around this time because Cloverfield had been out, what was it, six years before this. There were still a few coming out, but I think they were going few far between. And you're right, Paranormal Activity was still coming out, but I think that was pretty much the only thing. Wreck, all those found footage films, those all came out you know, a number of years before. All right, you have anything else to add, boys, or are we just going to go right into this plot? Let's dig in. Let's, let's go into the... Here we go. So we start off by meeting a mother who was together with her husband for 10 years. They had two kids, and he left her for a barista. She had been estranged from her parents for 15 years, and after such time had passed, they asked to meet their grandkids, and she reluctantly agrees. All righty, guys. So we're talking logistics. Given where the story goes, I think it's safe to ask, wouldn't you, I don't know, really look these people up to see if they're legit? Why are they living where they live? Again, right uh, away, doesn't I doesn't matter. Not for this kind of movie. You just gotta, you just gotta accept it and move on, because that's just kind of the sort of thing. You know what I mean? It's like, why are they? Why, why does someone go into the spooky house? You just roll with it. You know what I mean? And if Catherine Hahn says that this is what you gotta do, it's what you gotta do. I mean, you know, I don't know when this is coming out. This is probably, I don't know when this episode's coming out, but full disclosure, this episode is being recorded in the midst of Han Mania right now. If yes. You're listening to this month yeah. from now. Yeah, I was shocked to see her being in this. We are in a car ride to the train station, and the kids are off toward their grandparents' house. Matt, I'll go to you first, sir. How do you feel about the introduction here? Do you have much of a problem with the intro that I do, or where are you standing right now? Let me be as transparent as possible. This is one of those movies that I could spend this entire podcast just tearing apart the logic and characters not acting the way they should. But I realized by knowing the twist five minutes into the movie, because not calling myself arrogant, but I realized there was only one of two options that this movie could have followed. So I said, you know what? If I have a good time, 
and Shyamalan does some inventive stuff with the camera, I'll let all this stuff slide. Until the Universal thing, <laughs> get it, because Universal was one of the logos on the movie, Nice. sort of hit me. I have this problem with a lot of movies. It's the why now problem. She waited 15 years, and now is the time that she's going to make the effort to reconnect. It just makes it very convenient given the parameters of the situation. Like, I, I don't feel like the movie sold me enough on this being the appropriate time. And also, once you show them what they look like before you take them, oh boy. On principle, I hate talking head exposition to open a movie. I fucking hate it. So the first five minutes of this movie, I got my arms crossed and I'm, I wasn't making a run for the door, but I already had my leg crossed saying, oh, this is going to be another piece of shit. Better win me over. But found footage is, by nature is exposition heavy. You right. know, I mean, you have to have a camera tell you what's going on. No, I, I let it slide for this. It's one of my biggest pet peeves with any kind of movie. Gotcha. Now, as we get on the train with these kids, I have to say, I think M. Night is kind of tapping into something here. I had two sets of grandparents growing up. One lived in Chicago. Another set lived in Brookings, Oregon. I would take yearly trips to both their houses, sometimes solo plane trips and sometimes with my parents themselves. Now, I love both sets of grandparents very much and have deep, fond memories of going, but there was always something, I don't know, a little off about going to a house that's a generation behind even your parents' house. And if I were a child not knowing what I was getting into, like these two kids, are i'd be a little afraid mike is that tapping into something with you too or oh yeah well this whole film is you know i mean it's a it's a, every horror movie is about some kind of real life fear and it can be a totally stupid fear or something that's really profound you know it can run the whole gamut and it can be something that's really reactionary too or something that's subversive and in this one it's all about sort of fear of old people which is a fun fear because that's not really yeah. something you get into a lot i mean it's just, it's the fear that old people are different they do things differently they do things creepily because their bodies are falling apart their minds are falling apart they come from a different time they have different tastes they are strange and they ask you to do strange things and stuff like that so it's, it's all about that i also love my grandparents still at the same time when you're a kid and you go over there you, there's always a slight air of like what, what what exactly is going on here why is this yeah yeah why is this couch why is it no one can escape from this couch when they sit down on it it takes them, you know <laughs> it's been here for 50 years and it is stuff like that there's always strange rules that go on there and and the poster for this film was just like it was like a fucking it was like a hand-knitted rules of grandma's house or whatever like that and i thought that was a nice little uh, there's a nice fun touch yeah that was a really cool poster Shyamalan was very smart because horror films, a lot of the most regarded ones involve the generational, there's a generational fear, but also from the perspective of kids. You know, I think of stuff like Halloween, pretty much any movie that puts kids in danger and there's that fear of the unknown tends to play really well. So Shyamalan's smart to take this angle. I will say, I think the kids are pretty good in this movie, but I don't think they're quite on the par of a Haley Joel Osment. No. No, not even close. It's weird. They're a little awkward, actually. Some of the line deliveries are a little awkward, but in a way, and they're both Australian, which is weird. I wouldn't have guessed yeah. that they were. I wouldn't have guessed that they were not American until I looked it up. So they do a good job as far mm -hmm. as that goes, but that might contribute somewhat to slightly odd line readings. But they, yeah, they have some awkward delivery. But actually, for me, I think that it kind of it weirdly works. I think because of the found footage style. I don't know why exactly mm -hmm. that makes it. It just seems to fit in in a way that, like, if they were in a proper, quote-unquote, film with cinematic lighting and a dramatic kind of score and everything like that, that might be underwhelming. But I think in the way that it's set up, I kind of didn't really doubt that they were sort of who they were. And I think they've got good chemistry as a brother and sister in a way that I think is pretty yeah. believable. 
he also didn't pick kids that would be on the cover of teen magazines because you got one kid that talks with a lisp and mm-hmm. is very awkward, and then the other one's not like that preppy cheerleader type of teenager. She's the one that's into old school camera work and. I, I imagine she's not a popular kid at school, so I think his casting was a step in the right direction, too. And we know how much Shyamalan loves randomness. He swears that both these kids being Australian was a total freak accident. He had no idea until they were filming that they were both Australian. Take that for what you will. We meet the ticket collector who comes up to the kids and feels rather amused that these two are making a film. He goes right into a monologue, thinking maybe he'll be noticed We learn that the little boy has a preoccupation with germs and that he's a rapper. Boys, Shyamalan, (laughs) when he was editing this movie, had two different cuts. He had one that was full of comedy. He had one that was more of a straight-laced horror film. And what he decided to do was kind of combine them together. Am I the only one who thinks that maybe this little bit of a trait should have been edited out, I don't know, in the script writing phase? I just can't see this kid doing this. I kind of love it. Um, do you really I, yeah a little bit i don't know it's it's cringeworthy but it's believably cringeworthy if that makes sense again i think it goes back to the found footage thing like if i if this was in if the, <laughs> i was about to say if this was in the village that would be weird but if, that, <laughs> if this was in another one of his films i would cringe at it but I, i'm cringing at it at this point because i'm cringing at a kid you know what i'm saying i'm cringing at this embarrassing 13 yeah. year old kid and I just kind of vibe with it. I don't know. I think that there's there's a really interesting mixture of uh, tones in this film between genuine horror and like some of the most straight up horror of his whole career. Absolutely. With yeah. comedy, with some of the more dramatic elements. And sometimes it's like all three at once and you're not even really sure if you're supposed to laugh or you're supposed to be scared or you're supposed to feel something else. But I liked it. I liked the way that that worked. And I think that that mixture is so welcome for me given how self-serious a lot of his recent leading up to this films have been. That's a fantastic point. I'll go with that. What you're saying is you are cringing with it, not at it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think this is one of those intentional choices where it's purposefully awkward in the way that you always had those kids in class that were trying too hard to be cool or overcompensating. So I think it comes off as pretty naturalistic because this kid feels like a... I don't know if wigger is the right word, but it doesn't bother me. I don't think this goes into the way of the happening where it's like you're laughing at it, not with it. I think it's more the opposite. Oh, interesting. I didn't expect this conversation to go this way so far. We see a title card that says Monday morning as they go meet their grandparents. One is Mirabella Jameson, played by Deanna Dunigan, who apparently is a really good cook. And then we have Frederick Jameson, their pop-pop, played by Peter McRobie. Guys, what do we think about these characters and their intros, these grandparents? Well, uh, Peter McRobie, or Robie, I'm not actually sure which one it is, but he is one of my favorite true character actors. Yeah, he looked really familiar. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's in all kinds of things. He's Jake Gyllenhaal's dad in Brokeback Mountain, at the end of Brokeback Mountain. Oh, okay. He's okay. one of the congressmen in Lincoln. He was the director of the CIA in Bridge of Spies. He's a priest on an episode okay. of Sopranos. He's in everything. I just always think that he's got a lot of believable intensity as an actor, and I think he's just got a great character actor face, too. So I was very glad to see her. I knew he was in it, but I was just glad to see him. And Deanna Dunnigan, I'm not as familiar with, but she's pretty uh, kind of legendary stage actor, particularly in Chicago. Like, she originated um, the lead part in, what's the, oh, God, what's the name of the play? The August Stage okay. County, yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was the, that would end up being played by Meryl Streep in the film. So I was like, all right, cool. I always love seeing character actor, particularly an older character actor, get a chance to 
have a more front and center role than what they usually get. Like uh, to go back to another Blumhouse example, when J- when J.K. Simmons got Whiplash, I just thought that it was so great that somebody was seemingly writing a part specifically for J.K. Simmons to just kind of knock it out of the park. Now this isn't on that level or anything like that, but I I, I was glad to see them. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's timing, I think, really hurt this for me, because I, I talk about actors that I recognize taking me out of found footage. I literally just saw Peter McRobbie in the first season of Daredevil, right before oh, this yeah. came out. Oh, he, yeah. He plays the priest, who has one of my favorite lines in the history of television, when he goes, how you holding up? And Matt goes, like a good Catholic boy. And he goes, that bad, huh? <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I, I think they're really good in this movie. They do exactly what's required. Now, Becca's feeling very cinematic as she's letting the swing just swing organically for her documentary. And as they go in, they see an old clock. And Nana learns that the reason Tyler wears his pants so low is because he's a rapper with the stage name T-Diamond Stylus, which really impresses Pop Pop. I love how impressed <laughs> Peter McRobbie is in this. He, he's loving the fact that this kid's a rapper. They do rock, paper, scissors to see who gets the bed. And they also find out that there are no bars on their phones and also that there is mold in the basement. So M. Night's doing a pretty decent job here of setting things up. He's obviously seen a few of these found footage films. And for somebody who hasn't done this genre, we've seen him do genres disastrously. Just go back to our last few podcasts. But here, I don't know. I think he's got a pretty good narrative going. Yeah, and they do foreshadow the Wi-Fi phone issue. Yeah. When the mom mentions it before they got on the train. So I like that there's pretext to that because we can talk about a dozen horror movies that have their problem where it's like, oh, I got AT&T, no bars. Like, yeah. that's it. So many contemporary horror films have to do that. It's so essential that they establish that people uh-huh. can't be using their cell phones because otherwise the plot would not make sense. We're seeing Nana Cook. And they also have a conversation with their mom, who doesn't want to talk as she's just going on a cruise with her new boyfriend. So Becca gives the camera to Tyler to film nonsensical things like Pop Pop going into a shed. And then Tyler says that he's going to use female pop singers' names and replacement of curse words. And you talk about a piece of comedy that Knight really made me laugh at. If I wasn't going to use the rapper joke at the beginning of this podcast, I was going to, like, come on and just yell out, Lady Gaga, as we jumped on. Like, this, every time he falls and he, and he says, Sarah McLaughlin, and then these pop singers names i laugh my ass off yeah it's again it's a good way to get around that pg-13 rating as well yeah that's a good call too i didn't even think about that but yeah that is very clever pop pop says that nana is very happy that they're there and that bedtime is 9 30 around those parts and becca's watching her footage saying that she hates sappy movies as well as footage that doubles as a little candy for the ladies as (laughs) as tyler's saying we've reviewed m night movies where the comedy just doesn't work and here with the exception of the rapping which I could have done without. I am going with the comedy here. What about you guys? Are you guys liking the comedy being displayed? Yeah, I think I do. And I'm, I don't think this is, I'm not going to go like Dr. Strangelove, Duck Soup, Blazing Saddles. No, no. Business. I mean, this is, but, a, this is an animal yeah, house yeah, we're yeah. talking just, about. Yeah, here, right? I'm, just, I'm just tempering <laughs> expectations. I think it works here. I mean, I think that it keeps this right tone here. I mean, again, I just to go back to what I said earlier, it's like keeps from getting too self-serious. And also there's something interesting that he does here because by making this explicitly not only found footage, but a project that is constructed within the context of the film itself, as opposed to like something like Cloverfield, where the idea is that just it's just kind of raw footage and we're watching that raw footage. This is something that's been constructed after the fact. So that gives him this kind of out in two ways, where it's on the one hand, he can add in dramatic sort of editorializing that Uh is something that the character is doing. You know what I mean? So he can add in drama that wouldn't maybe occur in a fly on a wall situation because 
it's the girl who's adding the drama as the director of the film. And But also it gives him an out that if there's any kind of weird tonal inconsistency, it's because she's a 15-year-old kid making a movie and she's not yeah, professional. So, yeah, and I think that, that it's fun. And it keeps you also kind of on your feet in a way, I think, yes. because you don't know necessarily whether the next moment's going to be a joke or a scare. He was very smart to not make this a straight-up horror movie because this premise is so outlandish, especially when you have the big revelation that if it was a straight comedy, and really, nobody thought of this beforehand. So I think that imbalance actually makes the quote-unquote twist not as much of an issue as I thought it would be on principle. Becca ventures out to get some walnuts, and here's retching coming from Nana, who's downstairs. We then cut to Tuesday morning, as Pop-Pop says Nana had the stomach flu last night. So the kids go down into the... Where is this exactly? This is underneath the deck? I've never seen a house like this where there's like a deck and then you can like go underneath the deck. But they start playing hide-go-seek in there. They're pursued by Nana in a very bizarre, but go ahead and call it a very effective scene. Mm -hmm. Though again, the camera's being held as they're running and she walks away with her skirt in a very bad way, shall we say. But again, I, I think this is a very effective scene with M. Night. Oh, yeah, totally. You know, it's a little uh, jump scary. Uh, and I, I kind of wanted to stick up for jump scares just a little bit, because I feel like those kind of in the past 15, 10 years or so have kind of gotten a bad rap in a way as being like, oh, the ultimate, like, cheap. I would like real horror. I don't want to see, like, jump scares and shit like that. Where I think that, you know, you employ one correctly, and it's extremely effective. I mean, Hitchcock used jump scares. I, one of the best ones ever is in Psycho. The guy's going up the stairs and everything like that. And so uh, Shyamalan uses a few of those here, and he, I think, uses them well. I think that whenever he does use them, it's based on the atmosphere that he's created leading up to it. It's not just someone's at Dunkin' Donuts enjoying a nice coffee and suddenly something jumps out from behind them. It's because he creates a scary situation and then something jumps up, you know. By the way, you're, have you been listening to our horror podcast? That's pretty much me and Matt, what you just did an impression of in our jump scares. Oh, sorry. <laughs> in I... our critiques of jump scares. No, I, I, I will plead the fifth on this one. I used to rebel against jump scares for the longest time until I realized that they can be employed very well. Shyamalan employs it pretty well here, although I think given the age they're supposed to be, I think she moves a little bit too quickly. But that's just a mm -hmm. very minor pick on my part. That's like the one part that takes me out. Dr. Sam's here from the hospital that the grandparents counsel at, and he just wants to make sure that they're okay, though everyone who comes into frame in this thing wants to be an actor. And I do like that. Once they see these kids are holding cameras and they're making a movie, like everybody wants to act in front of the camera. You know, I, I thought that was a nice touch that M. Night added. Well, speaking of that, I will say, I think that in the train attendant, it's telegraphing yeah. the twist because they're acting as their real grandparents. Ah, I didn't catch that, but you're absolutely right. Wow, I did not put that together. Tyler wonders if there are dead bodies in their midst. There's another bit of foreshadowing, boys. And he heads to the shed. As he walks through it, there's a pile yeah. in the corner. And we're hearing amped up sound effects of flies buzzing. As Tyler gets near the pile, he picks something up. And this thing ends up being an adult diaper. He runs from the pile and, oh, Sarah McLaughlin, he falls. This is kind of gross. Kind of? <laughs> I, you know, I saw this movie when it was first out. I have not seen it since. I've only seen it one time. By the way, that's not influencing the way I feel about it. I just never got back around to watching it. But I had completely forgotten about this whole adult diaper part of this movie. And, man, I was gagging. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude. You went this far? Yeah, it's gross. It's real gross. Effective, I think. Effectively gross. Yeah, well, effectively okay. gross. That's a great way of putting it. you gotta, you got to find ways to creep people out without blood. So Yeah, it's, that's a good point. 
And we're so jaded yeah. these the days. Hor- yeah, but it's also playing on the horrors of getting older and losing your... Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. So I think it's effective. Yeah, and in fact, I'm doing a lot of reading up on Stephen King, given a uh, retrospective we have coming up. But Stephen King loves to say that if he can't scare you, he will very happily go for the gross out. And I think that's kind of what M. Night's doing here, where it kind of grossed me out seeing this scene. So we cut to inside a car with Pop Pop, and the kids are playing a game of driving by buildings and making up characters who live there. Again, very creative writing here by M. Night. And I haven't said that in God. It's been fucking months since I've said that, but I like the writing he's doing here. They go to their mom's old school, and Pop-Pop approaches and attacks someone he thinks is following him. This was an odd little scene. Kind of a bit of foreshadowing of how crazy this guy is, huh? Yeah, and it's a good way, because it takes a while, because he can't have the grandparents be totally cuckoo bananas killer from Monday morning on, so he has to kind of find ways to not just show some creepiness like walking around the house just vomiting indiscriminately but also some of the violence so and it also it allows you to see the grandfather peter mcrobbie as a more of a physical threat than he might otherwise appear to be because he as an older man you might think he's just kind of frail but i think he does a good job setting up that this is a guy who despite his age is very uh uh, strong he could be a physically uh imposing person you mentioned from Monday Night On, and I got to ask you, what do you think about this conceit of having these title cards before each day? Does that work for you? Have oh, this kind of a ticking clock? Totally, or? totally. I mean, it's kind of yeah. stolen from The Shining a little bit, where The Shining has that great uh-huh. has that great title card where it's. I don't remember which day of the week it is, but it's just like Thursday. Oh shit, something must happen on Thursday. He kind of does that yeah. here, and it, it does. It's it's uh, effective. I mean, it's it's a little bit stolen, but it's effective. I think because it gives you that ticking clock, but it's also I think how people really do think when they're on a trip somewhere and they're out of town a little bit, where there's that kind of tension of like you're enjoying being on vacation, but also there's that slight air of time being out of joint a little bit. So you're trying to keep track of how these things are going, and you're like, is it is it only Tuesday morning? I I don't leave till Friday. How's it only Tuesday morning? It helps you keep track of the chronology and makes the documentary component work a little bit better because obviously we're going to find out at the end of this movie, retroactively including these, the girl put them in. I do have one question, and this is just the actual movie. So they go to the school, right? Yes. Uh When is this movie taking place? Because these kids are not in school. I'm guessing it's winter break, maybe? But there's no Christmas stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is weird. I don't know. Oh, boy. Speaking of weird... Hey, I did a matte transition there. The kids hear a sound at night, and when they explore, they find a naked Nana clawing at the door. You know, you guys mentioned this was PG-13. I didn't even think that it was a PG-13 until you guys said that. I thought this was R. I had no idea about the rating of this thing. But he's doing this very effectively. And, you know, you guys, uh, Matt, you mentioned James Wan. That's what got the Conjuring an R rating. It wasn't because there was any gore. It was a lot of language in it. It was just very intense. And I think Shyamalan kind of gets by with a PG-13 here. But he's got, like, a naked lady clawing at a door. It's really weird what he gets away with. But, again, I'm going to say it's effective. It's also spaced out, too. I think that helps with the rate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. We cut to Wednesday morning, and Pop-Pop says that Nana has a diagnosed disorder called sundowning, which was actually the working title of this movie as M. Night was filming it. Pop-Pop is dressing up for a costume party as Nana tells them that she spilled biscuit batter on their laptop. So, Very convenient. It looks... I must say, it's literally... Yeah, very... (laughs) Do you guys think it could have been intentional? That she didn't want the real mother to see? Uh, You know, that's a good point. Maybe. Becca looks up sundowning herself, which is neurological reactions to sunlight and moonlight. 
and she assures Tyler that there's nothing to worry about. Nana's just getting old. So they FaceTime their mom, and Tyler tells her that their grandparents are kind of weird, but their mom doesn't see any issues with this and actually seems more occupied by the hairy chess contest going on in the background than her kids' concerns. And, Mike, you brought this up, but grandparents, they're just from a whole other generation. So I can see how these two may seem weird to a white-wrapping grandchild. It's like the mom's, like, seeing that these kids are looking for things to find creepy about them. Right, yeah. And it's like, oh, everyone's great. My my grandma had, I guess she still has them. I don't know where they are, though. But she had all these weird Victorian dolls that she would keep in her house. Yeah, and, like, a big glass case at the end of the hallway and stuff. And it's not like they ever, like haunted my dreams or anything like that but you know it's still it's like creepy like why is someone keeping this is this what happens when you get that old and so yeah it's 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 a relatable kind of thing in its own twisted way that's always what's fun about horror movies when when done right it's some kind of fear that maybe you didn't even think about you didn't even think it was a real fear just some kind of weird concern or neurosis uh-huh. that you had but it's reflected back in this really twisted kind of shape and it's a way of sort of dealing with that and dealing with the parts of your mind that you're usually not addressing you know the subconscious, the things that are at the margins and the fringes, our fears, our our worries, our sort of hidden desires. Uh, I'm trying to quantify this in a way. I think this movie works a lot better if you had a distant relationship with your grandparents. I was predominantly raised by my grandparents when I was much younger. All right, so this isn't working for you at all. The horror really doesn't, to be perfectly honest. I don't think this is a horror. I wouldn't classify this as a horror movie first and a comedy second. It kind of leaves me wanting more. And I've seen Shyamalan be very, very minimalist. I know he can do it. Yeah, and believe it or not, I think he's holding back here. I think there are some things where he can go overboard. I mean, we've seen him go overboard a lot. Killer plants, anybody? But I think he's holding back in this movie where he could have these grandparents do even more dastardly things if he really wanted them to. But he's holding back. He wants to save that for the grand reveal, which we'll get at the end here. But it's not something you're really thinking about. You're just kind of going along with it. You're along with these kids. It's an amusing journey. They're an amusing set of kids. So I think he's doing everything that I knew he can do. I mentioned that I felt like a fool the majority of this retrospective because I called M. Night out on his ability to direct Haley Joel Osment and he hasn't really shown an ability to direct kids since. Here, I think he's doing a very effective job with these kids and I think the script, everything is working so far for me. So, Becca asked Nana while washing dishes if she can ask her about their mom but Nana walks away just completely uninterested. She even does the Hansel and Gretel thing of asking Becca to get in the oven so that she can clean it. This was a bit of suspense for me. Would she close the oven and attempt something? But it just ended up being a test to see how far she'd go before agreeing to be interviewed for Becca's film. Or is it? Uh, what do you guys think? I like this callback to Hansel and Gretel. It's obvious callback. Matt, you and I, we have reviewed terrible callbacks to Hansel and Gretel. Go back to our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But how do you think this worked? I think this was good, although I wish this wasn't spoiled in the trailer. I think this is one of those instances where seeing the promotional material kind of hurt it. Oh, yeah. I, this was a big uh, trailer scene. I remember that, too. I, I remember seeing the trailer, and I think it was like, I think it might have been the last moment before the title card or something like that. But, yeah, it's, it's such a – I can't believe nobody – I mean, maybe someone's done it before, but it's such a it's such a well-thought-out kind of nice tension moment. I mean, it's so – it's just good. I mean, it fits in. It's the Hansel and Gretel thing, but it's also – it's just everyday kind of appliances used for horror, which is always a great just, – just a great trope. So Becca's loosening Nana up by asking her a few warm-up questions, like where she first met Pop-Pop. 
before digging into what happened with their mom once again. And Nana starts spasming out and then quickly says she now doesn't want to star in her film. Later that night, Tyler gets up to open the door, and when he does, we get a pretty good jump scare with Nana just walking back and forth in front of the frame. And at this point, Becca is still not convinced that something weird is going on. Again, this was kind of the paranormal activity thing that you mentioned earlier, Matt, with the fan going back and forth. This is just something kind of unexpected, the grandma just walking back and forth. And uh, we're going to get a really good jump scare later, but I thought this worked good enough for me. Yeah, it's effective because it leaves you asking questions like, is she really mentally unstable in that way? Or is there like a supernatural component? Like, are we going to get like a witch coven or something? Which I think Paranormal Activity actually did. Yeah, they did. I was like, oh, no. And the the twist is that it's an unofficial Paranormal Activity sequel. (laughs) Oh, that'd be a terrible twist. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's good. I mean, this movie, I got to say, the last couple Shyamalan movies, I had me sort of pretty bored out of my mind. I mean, the thing where you're, like, trying to stay focused, but you, like, keep getting distracted by literally anything. This is one that's kept my attention. I think that the short runtime... And even the filming style, I think, helps keep it moving along where it's like no, there's no scene in this movie that you were like, oh, man, that scene just dragged. All the scenes are pretty, you know, kind of quick and to the point. And like when he gets to whatever the button of the scene is, he just kind of presses it and moves on. And uh, and uh, I think that that's well done. A humble M. Night is a very good M. Night, I got to say, because when he did The Sixth Sense, he was coming off two pretty big bombs. They did well in the festival circuit and the movies didn't do well when they were released in theaters. And here he's coming off a very bad part of his career, like I mentioned earlier, and he's humbled once again. And again, he seems focused and he seems like he's on his game. So, yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. We then advance to Thursday morning. They're all walking through snow with Tyler doing impressions of Nana, which I thought was pretty funny. And they follow her to a well, once again, adding up to nothing. So at this point, guys, we are halfway into the movie. Are we in suspense at all? I mean, we know what they become at the end. But at this point, Mike, you hadn't seen this. Did you think they might be aliens or werewolves, as Tyler calls them earlier in the movie? Where do you think this movie was going? I wasn't sure if there was going to be a supernatural element to it. The constant references to the nearby mental hospital kind of tips you off in a way. But in a fun, like, Scooby-Doo kind of way, I think. (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Yeah, I mean, for real. This is that kind of story. <laughs> More shit in it. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, I was wondering maybe if there was some supernatural stuff going on, but it wasn't a very strong question in my mind. It wasn't something I was really like, oh, man, I bet that's what happens. We get a long story from Tyler about why he thinks his dad thinks he's a wuss for not tackling a kid during a peewee football game. And then they go back to the well, literally, to no avail. We get a scene of Becca getting very emotional about not looking at herself in a mirror and her insecurities start pouring out. I think Olivia de Johns, who's the girl who plays this girl, I think she's great in this scene. And the next one where she says she will never forgive her dad for leaving them. I I think M. Night gets a lot of shit for dragging emotional scenes out. We've called them out ourselves. Matt, you especially in The Sixth Sense of all things. But here, I think this works pretty well. It's a way of sort of reconnecting with your humanity and self-improvement. So I think by being this naturalistic, is actually to the movie's benefit. I don't view it as a weakness here, like I did in some of his other works. Tyler's, meanwhile, convinced that there's something going on that they shouldn't be seeing. He thinks that they're, as he says, throwing shade. They get a visit from an unnatural acting patient named Stacy from the clinic, who stops by to drop off a pie and check on the Jamesons. 
We then get another jump scare, this one of Becca emerging from a door. I thought this was kind of amusing. Tyler's approaching the door here. It's not Nana coming from the door, though. It's Becca. Again, I think that worked okay. Mike, you're going with the jump scares still? Yeah, especially because this one is just fun. This one is one, and I realize that that you could say, oh, well, that's cheap, but there's already been at least one jump scare at this point, and there's going to be more later on. So I like throwing one in in the middle that's literally just a kid bothering her brother. That's funny to me. Becca then films Nana listening to music while having the deep darkness, as she says. And she says she has to laugh to keep the deep darkies in the cave. Oh, boy. Meanwhile, Pop-Pop's cleaning a gun as Becca tells him that Nana isn't doing well. And she finally caves into Tyler's wishes to put the camera out tonight. So now she's finally convinced. She's seeing this guy with a gun in his face. It's time to fucking keep an eye on these people. Tyler's feeling odd about touching the toilet handle, and Becca cleans his hand for him. So we cut to Nana, who's getting up and slamming the door over and over before leaping right into the camera's view. Again, this scare just fucking got me, man. I felt my heart jump in this. Then again, I don't have the best heart in the world. It's a very unhealthy heart, so maybe I'm alone in this. Did this jump scare get you guys? Oh, totally. I forgot this even existed. When I popped it in for the rewatch, I almost jumped out of my seat. Yeah, very well done. You know, in the beginning, I was kind of getting, Matt, you mentioned paranormal activity. I was kind of getting paranormal activity flashbacks because she's sitting there, she's slamming this door over and over. And I'm like, okay, unexplained behavior going on. This is exactly what we got from you, Jason Blum, a few years earlier. But no, she does something completely different and it took my breath away. So Nana takes the camera away and we cut to the kids' room where they hear some more slamming. We then cut to Friday morning where Becca is proclaiming that the trip will be over before the afternoon. The kids move outside to pretend they're playing and grabs Pop-Pop to interview him. He says he saw a white thing with yellow eyes running around his work before being fired. Becca says it's some form of schizophrenia, and they look outside and see Stacy arguing with them. Nana once again agrees to answer questions, and Becca opens it up to talk about anything. And she goes on about creatures and water that spit and make people sleep. So this is M. Night once again visiting the bullshit story of him drowning in a pond in that so-called documentary. <laughs> from- <laughs> If it's a sequel to Lady of the Water, I'm running out of that theater screaming. (laughs) How amazing would it be if at this point in the film, the grandma goes, why don't we sit around and watch a film I have? And pulls out a VHS, (laughs) The Buried Secret of M. Night Shyamalan, puts it in, and the rest of the film is literally just a single static shot of them sitting on a couch watching The Buried Secret of M. Night Shyamalan from over the shoulder. (laughs) That would have been amazing. But that would have been 2002 M. Night. That's not 2015 M. Night. True. So it would be like a, be a retroactive cameo. Mike, you mentioned it, and every single movie, i got to bring it up every time it happens, but you mentioned way back in The Sixth Sense, there's always one moment in every M. Night movie where you think, God, why'd you write that? Why'd you direct that? That came off so cringy. I thought this scene, I know we're playing on her quote-unquote schizophrenia that the kids are thinking she has, but this was a little cringy for me. Uh, no cringe on my end. Uh, I thought this was a good wow. Yeah, no, I thought this was a well. This is actually, now that I'm thinking about it, these two scenes with this part where she's telling the story and also um, the grandfather talking about the white, was it uh, was a, a white monster with yellow eyes or yellow monster with white eyes? Either way, those were the... White monster with yellow eyes. Those were the two scenes that I thought, maybe there is something supernatural going on. Now, I didn't, I don't think I stuck with that, but uh, that made me wonder if there was maybe something more to these old people than just sundowning. But uh, we'll see that that was not the case. Once Becca mentions their mom, Nana once again starts losing it. 
but she changes it again to what she is passing off is another story, which is how her mom left them. So Becca smartens up. She knows that mentioning her mom will get her going. But once she does, she starts saying the story that her mom told her. But she's saying it in a way where it's like a made-up character. So this is kind of, again, more clever writing, I think. This character is not just a 15-year-old girl trying to make a movie. She's kind of smart, too. Yeah. She's Penny from Inspector Gadget. There you go. (laughs) So the kids go in the house to Skype with their mom who Becca tells to come get them right now. There's something wrong with Nana and Pop Pop. And it is when the mom gets glimpses of the grandparents outside, she reveals the two people they've been staying with aren't their grandparents. I like this reveal quite a bit. I like how Catherine Hahn's voice is shaking as they're putting the laptop down, and she's trying to get it out, and the kids are kind of talking. And so she's like, kids, kids, kids. I have something very important to say. I love the slow realization on the kids' faces. And I love how she calls the police department in a panic. But the police department obviously is no help, at least right at this point. There's a half hour left in this movie, and I'm in a panic as to how these kids are going to make it out alive. So this is a very good scene. Yeah, really good. Uh, Catherine Hahn's really good at that thing of switching from playing lighthearted comedy to getting serious yeah. very quickly. She's been doing that on, on WandaVision also. She's very good at that. That's a very specific skill set, and, she, and she's got that. Also, this is the thing that I, I watched this on Amazon Prime, and you know how when you pause something on Amazon Prime, there'll be a little um, trivia that pops up or whatever, because Amazon owns yeah, yeah, TV like, now. Like, I, like who's on screen and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I had paused it at that moment, and one thing that they pointed out that I, I hadn't put together is, do you, would you guys remember that scene earlier on in the film where they're doing the thing where they point to a building and they have to make up who is mm-hmm. living there or whatever, and they point to the police department and they go, oh, yeah, there's a policeman named Jimmy who lives there, but he never answers the phone. That's literally what happens in the scene. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's great. This movie's a good comedy. I like it. Matt, what do you think of the reveal, sir? I had to be picked up off the floor by security out of sheer surprise. I'm kidding. <laughs> I didn't think, I thought you were. Dead pan is dead. That was, was dead like... fucking pan right there. <laughs> that pan dead is air. deader than the real parent. <laughs> oh, that was too far. It was the most obvious thing. And again, this makes Catherine Hunt the worst mom in the world because she doesn't tell them what they look like before yeah. she sends them. You were the worst mom in the world. But you didn't think the reveal worked for you, like the way it was acted or anything? The way they, no, the acting's great. I just makes me hate her as a, as a, per, as a human being. <laughs> she should go to prison yeah. after this for child endangerment. Pop Pop wants to play a board game as Nana asks for help cleaning up. Nana once again asks Becca to clean the oven for her. Once Becca gets in, Nana closes the door, then quickly opens it. This ending's really shaping up to be something quite wacky. These grandparents, they really could kill these kids at any moment, but they're really screwing with them at this point. <laughs> the kids look outside, and they see that Stacy's hanging out there. And then we cut to the Yahtzee master at work before human nature takes its course and he has to leave. And then Nana Rosa Yahtzee. Again, another pretty good scare. This woman, she is so good at playing to that camera and she's effective every time she makes this really scary face and growls at the camera. That is something that can come off as completely silly. But every time she does it, I jump back in my seat. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, I mean, and and finding the right kind of sort of inhuman sort of notes. The way that she's like eating the cookies she's just like gobbling them down it's so weird and gross this is where normally i hate this but i think in this kind of movie it works which is where 
okay, let me think of an example. I don't have a specific example off the top of my head, but you'll, you'll be watching a thriller and someone's trying to find the, the murderer or whatever. And then there's the scene where the murderer is revealed and it's somebody who's been in the movie the whole time up to that point, but you didn't know they were the killer. Uh-huh. And then as soon as they're revealed that they're the killer, they start acting like a lunatic. Do you know what I mean? And that's usually, that's really bad writing and direction and everything. But I think in this kind of crazy horror movie where it has this wild twist, I think that it's totally fine that at this point the grandparents just are just like nuts and like screaming Yahtzee and shoving cookies out of their mouths and all kinds of stuff. This is where things get really buck wild. Well, up until this point, they had a front going, right? Yeah, like, yeah. They were fronting as the grandparents. So once it's revealed, why give a fuck about fronting that anymore? You know, just go all out. Yeah. <laughs> Becca goes down in the basement and finds pictures as well as hospital clothes before finding the bodies of the actual grandparents. And here comes Pop-Pop, who attacks Becca and threatens to throw her down the well before grabbing a hold of her and dragging her upstairs, right by Tyler, by the way. He's knocked down, and she's then approached by Nana. And with Tyler now paired with Pop-Pop, we have a double standoff going on here, boys. Pop-Pop shoves a used adult diaper in his face. Jesus Christ. Oh, gag. Yeah. Oh, my God. My reflux started to kick in. Oh, my God. Man alive. As Nana runs Becca's face into a mirror and attacks. Very intentional, I would say. This was a nice callback from earlier in the film. But she gets out and attacks Pop-Pop. And then Tyler hits him with the refrigerator door over and over while yelling obscenities. Becca gets out and sees the police approach. And as we know, boys, in cinema, police are supposed to mean safety. So their mom grabs them and they run to safety as music finally plays in the background. We haven't had any music in this movie. I don't know what music I'm going to be playing in the background of this intro. What do you guys think about the way that this final scene's ending? One of you guys brought up Cloverfield earlier, the one with John Goodman. It kind of reminded me of that a little bit. They're kind of stuck and they got to fight their way out. And I, I think it's a very effective conclusion. What do you guys think? Yeah, well done. Well, and there's a really interesting kind of tonal... It's not even whiplash, because that implies you just go from one thing to another thing. It's this, it's this weird tonal mixture where the stuff with the girl and the grandmother is pretty intense. I mean, it, that's just like straight up movie violence kind of slasher yeah. sort of thing. And it's played so straight. I mean, it's it's not played in a comic way or, or in a way that's more grotesque than you might expect. It's played really straight. And the actor, Olivia, I don't know how you say her surname, but Olivia DeJong or, or something, she is playing it very straight, playing it very well. She seems believably scared and everything. Meanwhile, you've got the boy and the grandfather, and that's the thing where it's disgusting. And it's, it's not scary, but it's disgusting. But it's also kind of funny, but you can't watch it and stuff like that. And then you go from that into this, when they're reunited with the mother, and it's just like straight up they're like weeping and they're like it's like the fucking end of captain mm-hmm. phillips they're like you know going through like in shock and everything then that's played very straight so it's like you have all these mixtures of like horror drama comedy and it's kind of like all going at once and i think it goes really well which is not something i'd say of the next scene actually which is a scene that i don't think he does pull off but we'll get to that i guess he stole my thunder get another thor reference i promise it was it was unintentional but i, I think <laughs> I think the final is a disaster. Wow. Really? Wow. Welcome to our first argument. I like this interview scene. I like when she's revealing details about her real parents. 
And then she's begging Becca not to hold on to anger. This stuff works. I think it's very effective. I think Catherine Hahn is playing this perfect. And I see the girl filming this. I see her learning from her mom. They have not made a connection to their mom this entire time. Their mom has been banging dudes while they're being chased around by people who claim to be their grandparents. They're having a real set of moments here. And I really dig it. Now, what I don't like is the rap at the end. That's where I was just like, oh, get the fuck out of here with this shit. But here, the scene between Katherine Hahn and her daughter in this movie, I think it works. Here's what I think it is. I think it would be executed well in a sense. Like, I think Katherine Hahn's playing it well. I think it's well-written kind of in the abstract. What I think the issue is is that you can't put that scene at this point in the movie. And there's no other place you could put it, but you can't put it here at this scene in the movie because it's played so straight and so sincerely, but it's about an emotional arc and emotional development that's not really developed throughout the film. And by the point when it comes into the film, we've already dealt with the actual kind of arcs of the characters within the film and and the the tension that is uh, resulting from that. We've dispensed from all the tension because the two killer grandparents are both dead and everything like that. So there's no tension anymore. And now you throw in the emotional scene, but because it's not something that's so directly tied into what we've seen, it doesn't work. Some of the more emotional stuff that's earlier on in the film, I think, does work and doesn't come off as too sentimental because we're still in that tense atmosphere of they're in this house, something weird's going on. So we're emotionally heightened because of that. But by the end, the tension's dissipated. So when we're watching her doing this, it's kind of neither here nor there. That, to me, is what the issue is with the thing. I think in the abstract, this was just like a monologue that she was doing somewhere. I think it would be fine. But the way that it's placed within the film is, I think, is, I think, a mistake. And I think that's where I stand on it. To me, it, it reads like, and I'm going to go ahead and make a comparison to The Sixth Sense again. It, it reads like the bee pendant scene in The Sixth Sense. That scene just, it could be so hokey, but I think the way they play it, it makes it work emotionally for me. Here, I think this is working emotionally for me. It's not working for you. Matt, what about you, sir? Why, why is this scene such a disaster for you? So Mike touched on a lot of it, but I'll add one point. It's the, the false equivalency of learning to let go of hatred because your dad left you versus your parents yelling at you for your taste in men, which, by the way, they were totally justified in. So I think on a moral level, I don't think it works. All right, obviously my two co-hosts would rather have this white kid rap to end the movie, which is what we get. (laughs) Yeah. I love that this is apparently a couple weeks later. I think he says that at one point. He's already rapping about it. Like, they've really overcome this uh, trauma very quickly. Like, I love that. It's so (laughs) theoretically stupid, but it is kind of a weird acknowledgement of how many of these horror movies kind of end on a note where you're like, well, no one would ever recover from, like, think about, like, the the woman at the end of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And she's, like, (laughs) in the back of the pickup truck covered in blood. Like, she's never going to get over this. And then in this movie, you've got these two kids, <laughs> like a month later, he's putting a rap about it, and she's she, she, he's doing a rap about it, and she's putting it at the end of her, her documentary. So that's goofy. I like it. It's fun. This was a real documentary. All the money would have gone to therapy bills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not kidding. All right. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give the visit? I am incredibly curious about this. Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. So... On the Shyamalan scale, this was a very welcome return to form. But I don't think that makes it a great movie. Because it shot well, he does some good stuff with the comedic beats, but to be perfectly honest, I think one or two jump scares notwithstanding, I don't find this scary. And I don't know 100% what Shyamalan was going for. I think he leaned on the comedy, and I think he does pretty well with that. But a lot of the dramatic beats, they're played off well. 
but some of the underlying thematic issues I have really sort of bother me. So it's eminently watchable. I think this movie flies at a brisk pace. But unfortunately, I think it's also undone by the fact that I know the twist. There's nothing they could have done that would have shocked me in a positive way. Like, you could have said there were aliens, and I would have said, fuck this movie. Or you could have done something really absurd, but this was the most viable option. Kind of hurts the movie. So I was at a five for most of it, but I think once they're essentially held hostage on that last night for the last 20, 25 minutes of the movie, I think that bumps it up quite a bit. So I'm going to go a strong six on ten for the visit. Certainly the best thing he's made since Unbreakable, because I think I, I think I like I think I like this more than Signs in the Village. Fifteen years later, he finally makes a decent movie in Matt's eyes. Mike, sir, what say you? Uh, I want to co-sign a lot of that. I mean, uh, this is by far my favorite Shyamalan movie since Unbreakable. I think I might have said this the last time we recorded, but uh, it's weird how, as the series goes on, you maybe start to rethink some of your prior numbers. Like, in retrospect, maybe I should have given, I think I gave them eights, I maybe should have given them nines, six cents in Unbreakable, I don't know. But uh, this is a seven for me. If those movies are eights, this is a seven, because I enjoyed all of it. Not, not every bit of it, but I enjoyed myself all the way through. Let me put it that way. Um, this is just a really fun, entertaining, amusing, and kind of uh, inventive in its own way uh, B-movie. And I think that Shyamalan, he certainly made some bad movies leading up to this, to the point where at one point while I was watching this, I was like, this is the greatest movie of all time. Just in a, just in a <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome kind of way. But no, I actually like this movie. This is a good movie. and I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, M. Knight has graduated from being the nanny of the Will Smith estate to doing his own project, funding his own project, and making a very good movie, actually. Uh, this is a movie that is, uh, it benefits from the element of surprise, I think, because I went into this, I was like, okay, we're knee-deep in M. Night Shyamalan, and just to peek behind the curtain, we intended to tape this two weeks ago, it's been delayed two weeks and I kind of waited until yesterday to watch this. And I, I put this in and I'm thinking, okay, hit me with what you got, M. Night. Because I wasn't expecting much. I remember seeing it in 2015 and thinking, eh, it was okay. Like the majority of how I've seen these M. Night movies. I was just like, eh, it didn't really hit me. But this time, the scares hit me. Every single one of these jump scares works for me. I think going to a grandparent's house, as I mentioned earlier, is a very scary thing. And for these two kids to go to a set of grandparents' house without knowing what to expect is even scarier. And M. Night really taps into that. What if they were like psycho patients who killed your grandparents and took over their house? That is a very scary thing. You think about the plausibility of it? Look, Matt and I have reviewed a set of movies now that... Um, <laughs> You think about plausibility, and you get nowhere. And I kind of realized that with this movie as well. Now, there's no cars jumping bridges in this, but we still have some plausibility issues. But I still had a pretty grand time, and I'm agreeing with Mike on this. I'm giving this a 7 out of 10. And if you haven't seen this, even if you don't like found footage, pop this in, man. It's not that bad. And, you know, when you're watching it, a lot of these movies, we talked about the happening and how we were just like, oh, M. Night did this. M. Night did that. You know, his stamp is all over the place in those movies. Here, I really, with the exception of a couple little instances, including the talk about drowning in the pond, I never even thought about this as being an M. Night movie. It works as a pretty effective little horror film. So, yeah, it's much better than you remember. 7 out of 10. Pop this in. All right, Matt, I cannot believe this, but we have, with the exception of the final movie of this retrospective, we have hit every movie that Mike has not seen on M. Night's resume. Mike, at this point, you have seen Split. Mm -hmm. We have talked about it a little bit in the first podcast, but what are you expecting when we review Split next week? 
I don't know. I wonder if I'll have a different take on it now. Um, I've only seen it the once, and I have seen Glass, so that might color my opinion on it when I come back to it, but we'll see. And it, I certainly could have my opinion change, just not change, but just given new context by having seen all these other films. Yeah, so I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to rewatching Split because I, uh, spoiler alert, uh, am a fan. Matt, sir, do you remember Split? What are you expecting next week? Yeah, I do, actually. I saw this at Fantastic Fest about five years ago. I was down in Austin, Texas. I was working for another site at the time, and I didn't know this movie was going to be showing, you know, because every time Fantastic Fest does secret screenings, and this was a big surprise. Not only the fact that it was a Shyamalan movie, I didn't realize he had another movie coming out, and the movie was also full of surprises I was not expecting, which I'm very excited to talk about next time we discuss, but it was definitely it was a very memorable viewing experience watching it with a bunch of people who had no idea what they were in for either. I have done a commentary for this movie. You go back in the binge archives. Pete had me on. I believe it was with Alex. We did a commentary for this. God, that had to have been three years ago, maybe two, three years ago. And I have not watched this movie since. I don't have very fond memories of it, but I am looking forward to reviewing it for this set of movies, just for the exact reason Mike pointed out. It'll give me a whole new perspective since I've seen all those movies in a row with you gentlemen. I'm looking forward to it. So until next week, we'll review Split. Podcasts are weird in the morning, but they're even weirder at night. Thanks, gentlemen. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. Garrett.
Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. Send ships, drop those things. There's, um, there's lots of visual tension. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry. Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. is a bad bad stretch so we gave mike a little bit of a break we reviewed movies about toys we reviewed movies about fast cars maybe we reviewed a few movies about ghost busting we'll get to that uh but after after earth (laughs) well me and my me and Matt have to record those still the conjuring Um, (laughs) no ghost busting the actual yeah the conjuring that's what that's what the conjuring's about But now we're back to... What? No! Full disclosure, this episode is being recorded in the midst of Han mania right now. If yes. you're listening to this month yeah. from now. Uh, America has chosen. Catherine Han is going to be president. 
Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, and head of the EU somehow. And that's what's yeah. going on right now. I don't know how this is going to end in a few months. There might not be podcasts at that time, but we'll see. <laughs> Boy, what a negative outlook you had. You were up really high, and then you just hit the barrel with that one. I contain multitudes. <laughs> what? No. Dr. Sam's here from the hospital and the grand... From the, I'm sorry. Dr. Sam's here from the hospital that the grandparents counsel at. What? No. It's telegraph yeah. with a twist because they're acting as their real grandparents. Ah, I didn't catch that, but you're absolutely right. Wow. I did not put that together. Mike, did you? Or are you, are you going to pretend? Oh, yeah, I did. I knew that. I will not pretend. <laughs> what? No. I was like, oh, no. And the, yeah. the twist is that it's an unofficial paranormal activity sequel? <laughs> oh, that'd be a terrible twist. <laughs> um, Mike, Mike what do you think about this little, this little scene? It's good. I'm still laughing about that one. <laughs> what? No. And that she needs the lecture. Did you get Thor flashbacks, Matt? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I was thinking of just medieval fantasy in general. Okay. All right. Mike's favorite movies, the Thor movies. Uh, <laughs> Thor subject. The, <laughs> the kids. You're not cutting the that. Kids You're keeping that in. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be a blooper for sure. What? No. This is kind of, again, more clever writing, I think. This character is not just a 15-year-old girl trying to make a movie. She's kind of smart, too. Yeah. Yeah, she. So, I'm sorry, Matt. I completely jumped on. I completely <laughs> stepped on that line, and it was a great line. So, repeat it. She's Penny from Inspector Gadget. What? No. Again, another pretty good scare. Like th this woman. What, what's her name? Danana. What, what's her name? I'm sorry. Uh, Deanna Dunnigan. Yeah, she is. What? No. Yeah, so I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to rewatching Split because I, uh, spoiler alert, uh, am a fan. And uh, are we are we gonna? I don't know when this is gonna come out. Is there any chance we're gonna see M Night Shyamalan's old as premiere as previewed on the Super Bowl? <laughs> are we? Yes, yes, we are. That's that's what we're leading up to, silly. Yes, okay. that's what this whole retrospective was about. Hopefully, theaters. That was the only reason. That. that was the only way I could sell this retrospective. Yeah, they were not allowing me to do it. But until I said, "Yeah, we're leading up to his new movie," they were like, "Oh, okay, he has a new movie. Go ahead and do it." Thank you, old. Yes, we I'm are so glad that. for old. What? No. But hey, that is next week. God damn it, guys! I did not pull up any quotes because. Hold on. Let me grab. Let me grab a quote here. I didn't even think about this till just now. I'm like, oh, God, I forgot to grab a quote. <sighs> Yahtzee! Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Would you mind getting inside the podcast for me? I got it. I got it. You guys need to stop. All right. So until next week, we'll review Split. Podcasts are weird in the morning, but they're even weirder at night. Swing away, Meryl. Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted. <laughs>